We're going to continue in our worship with the reading of the word. And our sermon series right now is in the book of Acts. And so our passage today will be Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Ferga and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mackenzie. Good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning and to get to worship alongside you. I usually have the opportunity and privilege to lead worship uh, on stage, and today I just got to participate and to lead worship through the preaching of the Word, so for that I'm grateful. Uh, but I'll begin with a story, and uh, one where I am definitely not the hero, and so uh, it could be a humbling endeavor, but we'll, we'll start there. So it was not my brightest moment. Picture this. I stood near the front door of our home, dressed and game ready for a adult rec league softball game. So I had my, my bag ready, my mitt in hand, and I was ready to tromp out the door. And my wife stops me, and she tells me that she has a splitting headache. And she fears that it may be the onset of a migraine or something perhaps even more sinister. Now earlier that day, we had attended our eight-month maternity appointment, and everything checked out fine. And the same could not be said for my softball team. While we gave our best effort every week, we were kind of middle of the pack at best, and um, interest began to wane. So we had challenge in even fielding nine guys to make it happen, right? And in adult softball, they understand that, you know, your skill maybe wasn't what it once was, and say they even give you 10 with a rover. But we were often rolling with just nine, right? And so Sarah thought that her headache might warrant a trip back to the hospital where we had been earlier that day. Now, I knew that in order to accompany her, I would have to abdicate my responsibilities, robust as they might be, as the team manager of the softball team, right? So, again, 
I'm not the hero of the story. I can still hear the conversation ringing in my ears eight years later. Honey, this is not the first headache you've had, right? (laughs) Danny, something is not right. This is different. But understand, if we head to the hospital now, I'll miss the game for sure. (laughs) Danny, I don't think this is an ordinary headache. I need you with me. You are my husband. (laughs) I'll skip some of the conversation that would only further incriminate me. (laughs) But suffice it to say, I chose to honor my responsibility as a husband over my duties as a rec league softball manager. But in all matureness, I pouted. So, Sarah asked me if we should gather together any of our supplies, perhaps put together a a go bag in case baby Kugelberg was making an early appearance. And I reminded her that it was just a headache. So at this moment, I feel compelled to give a bit of unsolicited advice to any expectant couples in the room or those who hope to be so soon. Once you crest the seven-month mark, pack a go bag, have your car seat ready, and always defer to the wisdom, always defer to the wisdom of your pregnant wife. Okay, back to our story. By the time we reached the maternity wing, Sarah's headache had doubled in force, and we were beginning to see the wisdom of perhaps the precautionary measures we had taken. The nurses attended to us, and we could, uh, before we could even grab a seat, they had already checked her vitals and got us set up in her room. Uh, they set us at ease, telling us that the doctor would be with us shortly, and Sarah changed into her scrubs, and I tried to get, she tried to get comfortable in the labor and delivery bed while I sat next to her in the spouse's chair, right? From time to time, a nurse would come by and check on the the beeps or lights from the mysterious hospital machines, and long after my softball game had come and gone, I stopped one of the friendly nurses and asked her if the doctor would be here soon um, so that we could be on our way. She looked perplexed, almost as if she pitied me a little bit, and she said, honey, you and your beautiful wife are not leaving this hospital until she has delivered your baby. (laughs) At this news, my stomach developed a sizable pit for two reasons. You might guess them. First, I could feel my wife's eyes daring me to look in her direction. (laughs) We don't have a change of clothes, Danny. I don't even have my toothbrush. There I sat in my softball garb, with my tail between my legs. And I quickly made a call to a good friend who made arrangements to get everything that we needed to ready ourselves for my daughter's arrival. But there lies a second reason for the pit. My wife was only 36 weeks along. Was there something wrong? This was uncharted territory for soon-to-be parents. As we tried to unsuccessfully sort things out in our minds, the doctor arrived with details that helped us to understand the reason for my wife's throbbing headache and the other symptoms that began to develop. My wife had preeclampsia, a condition that develops in a small percentage, about 5% of pregnancies, where the body believes the growing life inside of the mother is a virus that must be eradicated. 
This is actually the leading cause of death and pregnancies outside the United States. My wife's condition had progressed to the point that her life and the life that was growing inside her were both in danger. After the doctor had left the room and I had time to talk and pray and cry and pray with my wife, I was alone with my thoughts. I had never felt so small as that moment. There was literally nothing I could do in that moment actively to help my wife, the medical team, or the growing life inside my wife. I was powerless. Sarah and I spent the better part of the next three days in a sterile labor and delivery room, 72 hours, waiting, praying, waiting. At long last, the measures that the doctors had employed began to take effect. Our prayers were answered, and what followed was a blur. Before long, my fragile and bloodied daughter had been delivered, crying but very much alive. Yeah, I know. Now that's after a couple of days, after she had gained some strength, but she was just a four-pound peanut. Being born did uh, present challenges for her at only 36 weeks, and for my wife as well. Lily spent the better part of a week in the NICU, under the watchful eye of expert caretakers, learning to eat on her own. And Sarah spent that time and more at home on bed rest, aided by a caretaker who was less than adept, but I did my best. For seven days, I traveled back and forth from the hospital, caring for my wife and visiting my fragile four-pound baby daughter. After a week's time, the nurses informed me that Lily had progressed to the point that she was ready to come home with us. What a moment. You better believe that after all that had transpired before, I had my ducks in a row. The go bag was packed. The car seat was installed. But I didn't feel anywhere near ready. My little Lily had spent her last week being cared for by medical professionals. They were attending to her needs 24-7, watching her grow in strength, her lungs getting stronger as she learned to take in food. These people were experts. Who was I? I had not even yet crested 30, and I needed assistance installing a simple car seat. The butterflies in my stomach felt more like hummingbirds or elephants with wings. But despite my trepidation, the nurses assured me that Sarah and I would be ready. And as I carefully carried my daughter through the double doors of the maternity ward and out to the car, it was as if time itself had slowed. And it wasn't just because I was driving more carefully all the way home. I found myself again alone with my thoughts. And I was grateful. Our young family had experienced something profound together. And our lives would never be the same. I felt ill-equipped. I had questions upon questions, and yet our team of two was now made three, and a journey lay ahead of us. I was not now just a young husband, but also a new daddy, and I would never be the same. I would wager in this room that each of us have experienced a seminal moment in our lives, a single event that profoundly affects the rest of life that follows, maybe a fragile hope that is suddenly realized, a painful tragedy that is endured, love lost, love found, a move maybe to a new neighborhood or city 
country. A major choice that's made, which, which school, which job, which spouse. These singular moments that transform everything that follows is not limited to our individual lives. From families to communities to cultures to countries, there are particular moments that define the way forward. We find ourselves at a text just like this this morning. I'm not exaggerating for effect. What happens at Pentecost after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus leads his followers into a brave new era. As we open up to Acts chapter 2, let's commit our time in the word to God in prayer. Pray together. Lord, we are here this morning because there is nowhere else to go. You alone have the words of eternal life. Like the apostle Peter, help us, Jesus, to believe and to come to know that you are God. May we experience your love in a way that provides hope to us and others in turn. Help us to know more fully what it means to be yours this morning. For your glory and our joy, Jesus. Amen. I always enjoy when Mackenzie reads the sermon text. She does a great job. And this week it's particularly helpful because there's some wild and woolly stuff going on in our passage. But before we look at that, it's helpful for us to look at uh, the context of the passage, right? It's important for us to acknowledge that we approach the text this morning with a set of lenses, right? And your lenses may not be as stylish as mine are, but they inform the way that we read the text. That's why often as I'm studying, I find it helpful to grab a commentary or two off the shelf, specifically when I'm trying to understand the context of the author or the audience. I can try and get into their shoes or sandals as it were, right? I can try and understand as best I can, the way in which they would be hearing the text that Luke has recorded. So with our lenses firmly in view, let's talk about Pentecost. This era-defining moment that we read about in Acts 2 happened during a celebration of a Jewish harvest festival. Biblical scholars are quick to draw our attention to the name Pentecost, which means 50th. So what does that mean? Well, if you were to put your finger on Pentecost on the Jewish calendar and you were to count back 50 days, you would find your index finger firmly planted on Passover's day. Now, if that doesn't mean much to you, it doesn't get you excited, uh, but maybe if you were grabbing a coffee, say with, I don't know, N.T. Wright, um, he might encourage us to big a, dig a bit deeper, right? So envision that. N.T. Wright starts talking in a quite compelling British accent, and he draws our attention to the fact that because Pentecost was a harvest festival, it would involve presenting the first fruits of the wheat harvest, which was now in season, to the Lord in worship. As you nibble on your scone and try and consider the connection, nothing comes to mind. So he reminds you that Pentecost was also traditionally the time that Israel celebrated the anniversary of when Yahweh gave the law to Moses and his people from Mount Sinai. N.T. then waits for it to sink in while you sip on your latte, and you mull it over, first fruits, the law, Passover, Pentecost, harvest, Mount Sinai, 
and then things begin to crystallize. There are some first fruits things happening in our text, right? But not with grain, with people. The believers who bear witness to the nations in Jerusalem are like the first fruits of the pervasive work that the Holy Spirit will enable his, his followers to carry out to the very ends of the earth. It's a preview of the gospel work that he will accomplish through his people, which brings us to the giving of the law. Moses ascends up to Mount Sinai to be with the Lord. After receiving the law from Yahweh, he descends with the law in his hand on tablets of stone. Perhaps Luke desires for us to see a connection as we read Jesus ascending to the Father and then sending the Spirit who descends, not to put the law in our hands, but instead to write the law on our hearts. Huh, interesting. Maybe we should grab coffee with scholars more often. As we read Luke's account, both in his gospel and in Acts, because he wrote both, there's a theme that develops throughout his writing. Nearly every time he focuses on the work of the Holy Spirit, it involves testifying to Jesus Christ as the Messiah and orchestrating circumstances to bring the gospel to bear in an effective manner. One night a few weeks back, after Sarah and I had tucked the kids in, we sat on the couch with the puppy, and I picked up the remote to stream some high-definition entertainment. And before I could find anything compelling, which if you have Netflix or Prime, it takes a while sometimes, right? Before I could find anything compelling, Sarah suggests that I should check to see if there was a movie or documentary on the book of Acts that might whet my appetite for my studies. I wasn't convinced, but after a quick search, uh, to my surprise, first in the results was a multi-part video entitled The Acts of the Apostles, right? Some of you may have seen it. I wasn't sure, so what do you do? You watch the preview. I was watching the preview of the book of Acts, interesting enough. But it was a bit dated. It had some letterboxing on the side. But James Brolin did play uh, the main role of Peter, so we thought we'd give it a try, right? And it was really interesting. I confess to you that I found myself binge-watching the Bible or their portrayal of it, right? It's one of those verse-by-verse deals. We haven't made it through all four hours, and there were moments that were a bit wonky in terms of dubbing or acting alike, but there was something about walk, watching and or listening to the gospel or the book of Acts in one large chunk that helped highlight the power and prevalence of the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts. He's all over it, and everywhere he shows up, he's emboldening men and women to understand the power of the gospel and spreading the good news everywhere that he leads. As I read Daryl Bach's book this week on the theology of Luke and Acts, I was reminded that Luke points us to the Spirit's work over and over again. He ratifies Jesus as the promised Messiah and points us to the salvation that he brings. In Luke 1 and 2, where we learn about baby Jesus, The Spirit leads each of the men and women that are called to serve as witnesses to Jesus' coming. Take your pick. Look at John the baptizer. Look at Elizabeth, his mother, Zechariah, Simeon. We see the Holy Spirit leading men and women to see Jesus as the promised Messiah and to bear witness to his coming. 
Clear on through Acts, we see it as well. Whether through the group at Pentecost, which we'll look at today, Peter, Stephen, Philip, Paul, the list goes on. The Spirit is constantly moving to give witness to Jesus. And while the Holy Spirit is all over the book of Acts, he seems preoccupied with the spread of the gospel. As the young guns among us might say, he's obsessed with getting people woke to Jesus, right? So, if you brought your Bibles today, now would be a good time to get them out. So open up to the book of Acts if you're still rocking a paper copy like me, or wake up your cell phone and tap over to Acts 2, but that's where we'll be this morning. Starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. As an inquisitive reader, I'm led to wonder, who is the they? And as the chapter opens, um, we learn that many people are gathered together, but we have to make some assumptions or just not know, right? Because we're not given specific details about who was there. It could be the 120 that were to gather together. It could be the disciples with the newly ratified Matthias, right? Or it could be some combination thereof. But either way, that doesn't seem all that important because Luke doesn't provide us with that detail, right? But what he does tell us is that those who were gathered together were obedient to what the ascended Christ had commanded them to do prior to his leaving. He told them to gather together, and he told them to wait. He instructed them to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, right? Back to the text, verse 2 through 4. And suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What a spectacle that Luke must have been privy to. He's forced to resort to figures of speech when describing what happens next. If you notice, instead of saying literal tongues of fire or a mighty wind that rushed through, there is something more profound and miraculous than what he has experienced before, so he is forced to use simile, right? Like or as. A sound came like that of a rushing wind, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. What a beautiful image that was. God, who breathed life into Adam in the first days, was now breathing life and power into his believers. And the same spirit who filled the temple was now residing on and in his people. God, through his spirit, is now bringing something wholly new. An era in which he will allow each of his followers to share boldly about the mighty works of God. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit wasn't active up until this point, right? Pastor Andrew and Paul Pastor have laid for us a great foundation over the past number of weeks. One where we're reminded of the Holy Spirit who has been at work since before the dawn of time, living perfectly in unity and community with the Father and the Son. We're told of his handiwork in the acts of creation as well as sustaining life on earth. We've also seen in previous chapters in the Old Testament 
how he's come upon God followers before Pentecost for a specific time or a specific purpose. But what we're invited now to see in Acts 2 is a new era, inaugurated by the Spirit in which each and every believer becomes a temple for the Holy Spirit. That same incendiary witness who came upon those gathered together at Pentecost, that same Spirit who breathes radical, disruptive, supernatural life into the church in Acts resides in the soul of every individual who abides in Christ. We're going to read some crazy, mind-bending things that the Holy Spirit orchestrates and empowers his people to take part in throughout the book of Acts. None of it would have been possible apart from the Spirit's presence and work. We're talking about stuff that would spread like wildfire were Facebook to have been around back then, right? But each and every time there are miraculous things afoot, the Holy Spirit is aiding his followers to light up like a giant neon arrow that points to the Messiah, Jesus, who came to bring radically new life, who came to usher in a radically new kingdom. But the means by which the Holy Spirit makes his entry isn't the only miraculous part of our story, is it? The Holy Spirit's effect on each believer gathered there is equally fantastic. So let's go back to the text. Verse three and four. Divided tongues as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I don't know if your ears perk up when you read that text, but mine do. We learn that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, and that they are given this ability through the work of the Holy Spirit. This would be all sorts of fantastic in every sense of the word. Many of the same people who were gathered together had probably seen the resurrected Christ. Perhaps they had even been there when he ascended to heaven. They had heard of his miracles or seen firsthand or spoken with someone who received sight or was healed. But now, they are the ones who are being changed. Now, because of the work of the Spirit, the miraculous has taken up residence inside them what it must have felt like. Now, if you're asking yourself, what kind of new tongues are these, or did the Holy Spirit give them, why did the Holy Spirit give them this ability? We're in luck because Luke answers both of these questions, right? Let's look at verse 11. Second half says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, if you noticed, I skipped ahead to the second half of the verse. So who's the who? We have to go back to verse 9, and we'll read it together. Maybe not as well as Mackenzie did, but I'll give it a try. Parthenians and Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and the visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. To see a visual of the peoples and regions could serve to be helpful, right? Because these aren't, aren't necessarily regions or countries that spring to the mind of most of us, right? And so um, I found this map, which Colleen will throw up. And that comes from a guy named Mark Berry, and he's got a pretty cool site called Visual Unit. 
.me, right? And he's got infographics and maps and all sorts of good stuff there. But it's interesting to look at that, right? Because I think that Luke isn't trying to give us an, an exhaustive or a systematic list, right, where we need to go Bible code on it. But he is helping us to see that there were Jews gathered from the majority of the regions that surrounded Jerusalem. Each of these men and women possessed their own nuanced languages and their own cultures. And yet, according to verse 6, each of them could clearly hear and understand what those empowered by the Spirit were saying. What a marvelous thing. Again, like the first fruits of that which was to come. Now, for some of us, hearing the word tongues and Holy Spirit in the same breath makes us think about conversations that the church has been having for a long time related to the gifts of the Spirit. We might be inclined to talk for a bit about unintelligible tongues and interpretations and corporate life of the church. But my hope today is to focus on what Luke wants to bring to the fore, right? And Paul has a good deal to say about that elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, for example. But the tongues which he addresses there relate to, the, uh, relate to prayer or to worship and their benefit to the body. And so they seem to be different uh, than what Luke bears witness to in Acts chapter 2, right? Because in our passage this morning, the Spirit of God enables individuals to speak clearly, effectively, and without an interpreter about the mighty works of God. The Spirit's instantaneous translation work allows the gospel to take new territory without the need for language or culture study. What it must have been like for the nations that were gathered to hear and understand. Missionaries today are taking advantage of cutting-edge technology that allows them to translate the Bible in a much more efficient manner. But they still must do the hard work of working alongside native speakers to catch particular nuances or, um, that are unique to each people, group, or culture. This moment at Pentecost happened in real time. The folks coding over at Google Translate would kill for that ability, right? So thank you, Colleen, for that. Let's take a minute to zoom out from the passage for a bird's eye view of what's happening, right? And what's transpired both at the beginning of Acts and also the end of the Gospels. Maybe giving us a taste of what's to come. At the opening of the book, if you remember, we find a group of disciples who a few months back were grieving the death of their friend and master by way of brutal crucifixion. But before grieving for even a full weekend, they hear talk about Jesus resurrecting from the dead and the witness of an empty tomb. In a week's time, Christ appears to them and teaches them about the kingdom of God. After a little more than a month, Jesus promises a helper, the Holy Spirit, who will come with power and then leaves them in epic fashion by ascending to the Father. They've had a crazy couple of months. Peter in the same time frame, experiences profound transformation, right? If you remember during the Passions Week, Peter promises undying allegiance to Jesus, only to fold when he's presented with the smallest of challenges. But today, in our text, actually the text we'll read next week, Peter has changed. And those who are with him in Acts 2 have changed as well. 
I don't want to spoil things because Osh is going to be preaching on that next week. I won't steal his thunder. But Peter rolls out a doozy of a sermon just after Pentecost, and 3,000 people respond to the gospel with saving faith. What changed in Peter was, was not a what so much as it was a who. And in that, he was able to move from a place of cowardice to boldness, transformed to be an incendiary witness for the mighty works of God through Christ. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit breaks into the hearts and tongues of the people of God in Acts 2, and things are fundamentally changed. You see, they have not just been saved from sin and death through Christ, but they have also been saved to serve as a grace-bearing witness to the gospel through the Holy Spirit. Not only saved from, but also saved to. Saved from death through Christ, saved to bear witness through the Spirit. This week I pulled a book off my shelf that I had highlighted and dog-eared as an undergrad at Biola. And it's a small book entitled Baptism and Fullness by John Stott. Every so often, when I'm reading a good book, I'm afforded a gut punch, right? That wakes me up to something that probably should have been clearer. He writes this. The gift of the Spirit is as much an integral part of the gospel of salvation as is the remission of sins. Certainly, we must never conceive salvation in purely negative terms, as if it consisted only of our rescue from sin, guilt, wrath, and death. We thank God that it is all of these things. But it also includes the positive blessings of the Holy Spirit to regenerate, indwell, liberate, and transform us. Listen to his closing challenge. What a truncated gospel we preach if we proclaim one without the other. I know that because of the nature of life in this world that we can feel ill-equipped to share the gospel, right? Not everyone listened in our passage. They were mocked. They were even uh, accused of being drunk in the morning. But maybe as you seek to be a witness, you feel a bit like I did when I held my beautiful daughter fresh out of the NICU in my arms. I cherished her as the beautiful gift that she was. But I felt in no way ready for the task that was before me. There were so many other people, nurses, doctors, experienced parents who knew how to care for her better than I did. And yet I was called to care for her. She was ours. Men and women of Central Bible, if you, through the grace of the Father, have come to trust Jesus, our King, as your Savior and Redeemer, then you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. That same incendiary witness that spread the gospel like wildfire in the first century resides now in you. You are the speaker that God has chosen to play the beautiful melody of his mighty works through. Let's pray that through his Spirit's work in us, we would be able to give an intelligible answer to a listening world of the hope that is within us. Would you pray with me? Holy God,
Father, Son, and Spirit. We are yours, and we long to be used by you. But there are any number of times and reasons where we self-disqualify from serving as your witnesses in this world. The task is massive. May our spirit be willing through your spirit, even though our flesh is weak. Help us to not quench what it is that you want to accomplish in and through us. Help us to begin with faithfulness in small ways by sharing the works you have done by your grace in us to those who are already in our lives. Remind us that your Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us. Through whatever means you see fit, Lord, whether miraculous or mundane, help us through your Spirit to serve as your voice in this world. Help us to put language to the beauty of your gospel for your glory. Amen.